Hi! Hey, welcome to The Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, and those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm Kay Albert Little, an evangelical convert to Catholicism, and this podcast is born out of one particular idea. See, it began for me when a Protestant pastor asked me the question, what's more important, the Bible or tradition? It was a weird question, didn't quite know how to unpack it, so I began to unpack church history. I began at the beginning with the early church, the formation of the biblical canon, how the Bible was put together and organized, and what books got in and what books got out, and what tradition was, how that changed and developed down through time, up until the Reformation and beyond. And it was then, as I began to dig into church history, into Catholicism, the history of the Catholic Church in particular, that I realized what I thought I knew about church history, about the Catholic Church, was based in large part on misinformation and, more often than not, on simple misunderstandings. Well, this podcast serves to fill in that same gap. The gap between what you think Catholics believe and what we actually do. Each week I have a real Catholic conversation with a real Catholic thinker from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. I've got a great episode for you this week, a fantastic conversation that I was looking forward to for a long, long time with Dr. Robert Coons. He's a philosopher and a Lutheran convert to Catholicism. He's written a fantastic little book, an essay called A Lutheran Case for Roman Catholicism. He wrote it as a Lutheran. He convinced himself through writing it to become a Catholic. It's a fantastic perspective, really what he sought out to do, what he sat down to do is to convince himself to remain Lutheran, to stay Lutheran. That the case for being a Protestant Christian in the Lutheran tradition was stronger than the draw, than the historical weight, than the logical, the philosophical, the religious, the theological underpinnings of the Catholic Church. And hey, well, he convinced himself out of Lutheranism and into Catholicism. Spoiler alert. <laughs> It's a great conversation. Really, really, you're, you're going to love it. I'm sure. This conversation and others are brought to you by my patrons at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic and one-time donors at paypal.me slash cordialcatholic. Guys, this is not my full-time job, and it, your funding, your underpinning of this show helps me to have the time to do this, to be able to afford to do this, to upgrade equipment, to pay hosting charges, all those kinds of things are only made possible through you guys and your generous support. So thank you. If you like this podcast, if you like this ministry, this thing that I'm doing here, please consider supporting the show at cordial at patreon.com slash cordial catholic or one-time donations at paypal.me slash cordial catholic. If you do like it, please tell a friend too. Leave a rating and review if you can. Subscribe or follow the show. That helps to push the podcast out to new people who may not know this show exists. And that's fantastic too. Thanks, guys. Without any further ado, my conversation with Dr. Robert Coons, a Lutheran's Guide to Roman Catholicism. It's fantastic. Please listen and enjoy. Hi! Hey, guys, welcome back to the show. Fantastic episode for you today. Uh, I am joined uh, by Dr. Robert Coons. He is a convert to the Catholic faith, professor of philosophy at the University of Texas at Austin, where he's taught for 33 years. 
He's the author and co-author of a number of fine books, including Realism Regained from Oxford University Press and The Atlas of Reality, a comprehensive guide to metaphysics, and for our purposes here today, a fantastic little book called A Lutheran's Case for Roman Catholicism, Finding a Lost Path Home. Dr. Coons, an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you for being here. And hello. Well, thank you, Keith. Thanks for having me. My pleasure to be here. Absolutely. This is this is not a huge book, but a fantastic book. I love it. And I can't recommend it enough. And I'll put it in the show notes for this show for listeners and viewers to check out because it's a it's you are a philosopher and I you you bring that logical systematic approach to thinking through the Lutheran view of things and the, the Catholic view of things, comparing those, contrasting those, and coming to a kind of conclusion. It's so succinct in this little book. It's so, I think, well done. We owe you a great debt, I think, for writing that, for putting it out. So thank you. Oh, well, thank you. That's very kind words. Yeah. I, it. It, the Genesis actually, too, of this book, I think is so fascinating. So I wonder if you can talk to us a bit about that, a bit about maybe your faith background and then the genesis of this book and how that maybe shaped your conversion story. Cause that I think is a really interesting story. Can we begin there today? Yeah. Yeah. I'd be happy to do that. So, yeah. So my background is not surprisingly Lutheran, uh, raised in the uh, Lutheran church, Missouri Synod, which is uh, the more conservative uh, traditional uh, branch of American Lutheranism. Uh, my parents very devout uh, Christians, raised in a very uh, supportive Christian home. Faith's always been very central to my life. And um, I guess the story really begins when I went to college. So this is about a 30-year story to get to build up to the book itself. Uh, so I'll try to be succinct about it, as you, as you mentioned. Uh, it really started when a friend of mine, um, who is uh, Anglican, uh, and he's, he actually became the Bishop of Milwaukee later in the Anglican Church, uh, he invited me to a uh, reading group of reading some of the Church Fathers. And I said, yeah, that sounds fine, interesting. And that, that was already quite a disturbing experience for me because I had gotten the impression that, um, that what Luther and the Reformers had done was simply to correct, it was a course correction in the church, right? The church had been doing fine. It didn't disappear when the apostles died. <laughs> it, was, it was thriving through the, through the patristic period, through the Middle Ages. And then some kind of Aristotelian ideas got infected into the church and caused some problems, and then Luther brought it back uh, to its uh, proper course. And so when I read some of these fathers, I realized, wow, they don't sound very Lutheran. <laughs> they don't sound, it's not proto-Lutheranism here. It sounds an awful lot like what I would associate with Catholicism, Roman Catholicism. And uh, so that, that already sort of planted some seeds in me back in the, in the mid-70s. And I wrestled with this for a while. And then eventually I reached a point where um, I'd read the, the uh, Council of Trent's um, uh, sessions. And uh, looking back, I didn't really understand them, but I found various things in there that sounded to me like they were really contradicting the Bible, that uh, Jesus was not the formal cause of our justification. For instance, that's a phrase that jumped out at me. I thought, okay, that sounds really bad. Paul says he is the cause of our justification, right? So I, I reached the, a point which I thought, well, you know, there is something right about the church, the Catholic church. But it's, 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 it did fall into a crucial error here in the area of justification. So that justified the Reformation as a kind of protest movement within the church. Right? So I was, at that point, um, not willing to, of course, not ready to join the Catholic Church, but ready to think of it as, the, in a sense, the normative church. But 
that the Lutheran movement had a role to play within the larger church. That was the, my way of thinking about it. So that I was able to live with that kind of um, equilibrium point, let's say, for, for quite a few years, for maybe 20 years or so, raise a family in the Lutheran church and, and never, never really dissatisfied with Lutheranism or, or with my life in that church. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't that I felt some great need uh, to go elsewhere. But, um, but, you know, I'm interested in intellectual things, you know, as, as you say, as a philosopher. Uh, in uh, 97, there was this joint de- declaration by Catholics and Lutherans on justification, which reached the conclusion that there wasn't that big a disagreement between the two. Yeah. Now, I don't really think the declaration was that great a document, actually. It, it, it sort of papered over some differences, but it, it definitely raised the issue back into my consciousness again. I thought, well, okay, this is, this is a little more complicated maybe than I had thought. I need to, to look at this again and, and, and think about it. Um, about the same time, well, maybe a couple years later, uh, the journal First Things, which I, uh, I'm an avid reader of, had a, also a declaration about uh, grace uh, by Catholics and, and uh, Lutherans, I think, or maybe it was evangelicals and Catholics, I guess. Uh, and they also made the point that, you know, there's disagreement here isn't that deep. So, so that got me looking at the issue uh, all over again. And, um, and so there was a period there of about 10 years, really. Um, and towards the end, very intensive 10 years, where I was just pouring over these 17th century <laughs> theological documents, basically, on the Council of Trent and the Lutheran responses to it, as well as looking, of course, at the Bible and looking at some recent uh, scholarship on on uh, Paul, especially in his, his epistles uh, and the ideas of justification, uh, which is also something that I had been familiar with somewhat uh, back in the in the 80s, but hadn't really uh, poured myself into. So anyway, I, I started reading this stuff, and I was especially reading a lot of the church fathers, and again, finding them you know, not fitting the Lutheran picture well at all, in fact, supporting a Catholic view. And so I found myself more and more moving towards Catholicism, Roman Catholicism. And so it's, at some point I thought, well, here's the problem. Maybe the problem here is I'm just a, I'm a philosopher, so I'm sort of a contrarian. Right? I, I like to explore new ideas. So I'm attracted to Catholicism only because that's kind of my philosophical bent, right? I'm Lutheran now, so of course I'm going to look at the other thing. So I thought, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to try writing from a Catholic point of view, a kind of comprehensive case for Catholicism against Lutheranism. And once I finish that, then my contrarian spirits will kick in again, and I'll contradict that, and then I'll be, back, be able to move back to Lutheranism. So it's sort of a, it was sort of a Hegelian idea, I guess, right? That I would, uh, I would negate the negation, so to speak. Uh, so that was the genesis of the book, actually. I started writing, uh, sort of consciously putting myself into the position of making the best case I could for Catholicism. And, of course, the short story is, uh, after having written this, I, I thought, looked at it and said, I can't really tear this apart. This is pretty solid. <laughs> this, is, this is absolutely convincing. Uh, so at that point, I, you know, I had to become Catholic. Um, and I, I was one of the world's most reluctant converts, actually. Uh, it wasn't easy for me from a family point of view. My parents never really understood why I did it. Uh, my wife didn't uh, convert. So, uh, and as I said, I wasn't really dissatisfied with Lutheranism. But intellectually, I reached a point at which I felt convinced that the Reformation was based on some mistakes critical mistakes that we had to correct. And, uh, and so I didn't have any choice. <laughs> uh, to go Catholic. And I really thought, frankly, that it was going to be not that great an experience. And so I've been very um, pleasantly surprised <laughs> at what it's like to be a Catholic. It's opened up uh, new dimensions of spirituality that I wouldn't have uh, expected. Um, and the sacraments, the mass and, and, 
and confession and, and absolution. Those are just so powerful and so rich uh, that, you know, clearly it's given a whole new lease of life in a way to my spiritual life as a result of, of becoming Catholic. So very happy that I did it. But as I say, very reluctant at the time when I, when I did. <laughs> yeah, you, you end the book on that note. You're, you're one of the most slowest uh, and most reluctant converts in the Catholic history of the Catholic Church. And how, how you weren't necessarily uh, dissatisfied with Lutheranism, you mentioned that too, yeah. but, but you intellectually came to a place where you you realized that you had to make this this leap, become Catholic, and then were pleasantly surprised when you became Catholic, yeah. right? These different things yeah. that you discovered. I mean, it's funny for me, I, I have a lot of similar similar uh, things that led me into the, into the church, and I didn't even know what the sacraments were when I began exploring Catholicism. I was evangelical, I didn't understand a sacramental life or these things. So I, you know, I stumbled into the Catholic church and began RCAA and looking into the church, discovered the sacraments and, and embraced them. Right. I didn't even know they even existed. It wasn't even an attraction point for me, the church. I mean, you would have had sacraments in a sense as a Lutheran for me, it wasn't even on my radar. And when I found them, I was like, Oh, this other thing also is incredible about being Catholic. So it's quite, you know, it's quite a, once you become Catholic, I mean, there's, there's quite a lot there to, to unpack. Yeah, and as you say, a lot of these things were in Lutheranism. It was a, it was a, it is a sacramental church. So I often think that it's something like Lutheranism on steroids. Basically, yeah. that's what Catholicism yeah. is. Right? Yeah. All the good things that I like about being Lutheran, I find, are even more fully present in yeah. Catholicism. So, and it, it's such an interesting exercise too. I've done the same thing. I used to have a little piddly blog back when I was exploring Catholicism in my in my early 20s and I would just kind of dump thoughts there that I used to have and I had a couple of friends that used to read it and that was about it but one of those early exercises was looking at the worship service looking at my evangelical worship service on a Sunday morning versus the mass and which one made more sense based on our grounding in history and I and I came to realize as an even I didn't I didn't convert for another decade or so at that point but I came to realize that my evangelical church service really had no basis in in tradition. It was kind of like a mass taken with Eucharist taken away and with more singing and with more preaching. Uh, I found Louis Boyer, who kind of mm-hmm. explains this very well from a perspective of, I think he was actually a Lutheran too, if I recall correctly. Yeah, I think so. Right? But I realized then and kind of convinced myself that, you know what, the mass is actually more traditionally rooted and biblically rooted than my evangelical services. I didn't convert right away. Right. But that, that exercise of trying to argue against, you know, f- for your position against something else or argue for that position yeah. against yours, it's, it's, I mean, for a philosopher, of course, that's probably your bread and butter. But it's such an right. important exercise, I, I think, especially if you're looking at something as important as which church should I belong to to, to be yeah. to be fully yeah, in exactly. communion with, with Christ, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I felt, you know, my, my Lutheran roots go back all the way to the Reformation. And yeah. um, many of my ancestors were theologians and missionaries and all this. So, so I felt a huge responsibility to them, basically, not to do this lightly. That's why, I, yeah. as I say, poured through things that probably no one else had read for 100 years <laughs> uh, to uh, try to sort out, you know, who exactly has got the better argument here. And it sounds fun to me. <laughs> So the first thing you approach in your book is sola fide, which of course is one of these big pillars of the, of the um, of the Reformation. One of these things that yeah. that divides Catholics and Protestants. Can you kind of unpack what you believed about that? What you kind of came to discover? There's a lot in there, so we can't. You know, we could yeah. spend we could spend an hour just talking about this. But if you can kind of unpack yeah. where you began with that and the contrast, what you found when you began to dig into to, to compare the two uh, perspectives on sola fide. 
Yeah, good. I'm happy to do that. Yeah, that to me, that was the most central issue. And everything else really depended on that. You know, if, if the Catholic Church was wrong about something that's central, then um, then obviously it wasn't infallible. Right? <laughs> and so uh, so you have to fall back on the Bible or something else at that point. Uh, so uh, so, yeah, for me, it was really a crucial question. And probably almost half the book is just devoted to that to that one issue because it was to me at the great sticking point. Um, so, you know, I, I think the, the general Lutheran picture that I had initially was that in Lutheranism, uh, you know, salvation is a gift to us in, in the, in, through Christ. And we simply receive that gift by faith. And there's nothing that we have to do to earn it or to. Uh, so there's no basis for our thinking, no basis for my thinking that I'm somehow superior to others, to non-believers, just because I've accepted this, this free gift. And in contrast, I understood the Catholic view to be something like, um, well, you have to get your life together in such a way that it that it justifies God in, in accepting you. And God will give you some help in various ways. That's what grace is for the Catholic. But still, it's really up to you to uh, to achieve a kind of internal intrinsic righteousness on your own, or not on your own, uh, of your own, which uh, which would then uh, enable you to be justified. So, uh, so, and, and so what I discovered, of course, was that that was a caricature, certainly on the Catholic side, of what the Catholic view actually is, uh, including even in, in the Council of Trent. But reading the, the new Catholic catechism was very helpful here. Uh, there's a, um, a theologian at the University of Dallas called Christopher Malloy, who wrote a book called Engrafted in Christ that I find very helpful as well. And both of those sources emphasize the idea that um, for Catholics as well as for Lutherans, salvation is a gift. It is a matter of grace. And um, it's, and, and, and the, it's true that in a Catholic view, um, our works and our love for God and for others is part of the story, right? It is that which merits eternal life, but not in a kind of, not in an autonomous way, not, not in the sense that uh, my works are just intrinsically so great that they merit eternal life. It's rather precisely because they are being worked in me by God's spirit through the sacraments and in connection with Christ. So our, our, our works merit eternal life, but only because they are, connecting us to Christ. <laughs> and so it's still, it's Christ who's the one who, who justifies. He's, he's the meritorious cause of our salvation, as the Council of Trent puts it, the cause, right? So we don't add anything to that. Um, so, what, so that made me realize that the real issue between the two is not what's the basis for my being accepted by God and uh, forgiven and given eternal life, but rather how do I connect myself to Christ in such a way that I can personally appropriate that, that gift, right? Is it simply by, by faith or does it involve, um, uh, start with faith, which the council of Trent also emphasizes that's the root, uh, and the, the foundation of justification, but then does it, does it also include, um, you know, faith working in charity, as, as Paul puts it, uh, the whole life of the Christian as the Holy Spirit regenerates us and produces uh, love in us. And so uh, as, I, as I studied the scriptures in detail, it seemed to be pretty clear that the, 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 the second answer is the correct one, uh, that, uh, that it's, it's not simply um, faith. Now, the other complication is that uh, Lutherans and, and Catholics mean different things by faith. Um, 
uh, Catholics interpret faith in a fairly narrowly in the sense of just the, believing the things that uh, that God has revealed to us in the church. Whereas um, Lutherans would include also trusting in God for your salvation. And so, in fact, the Lutheran conception of faith, I think, does incorporate something of love into it, right? Because you can't trust somebody that you don't love, right? So, so faith and love are actually involved there as well. The well, Lutherans don't think of it that way. Um, they they think that there's a, a sharp distinction there, but again, I think it gets it gets uh, gets blurred somewhat. Um, so let's see. Um, let's try to see if there's anything else I wanted to add to that. Um, yeah, so I should mention, I'll mention, uh, this because it's kind of significant. Um, I, I was reading uh, the Apology to the Oxford Confession, which is one of the main uh, documents in the Lutheran Reformation by a man named Philip Melanchthon, who was Luther's sort of right-hand man. And he's talking about this very issue. And at one point he says, and, and Augustine agrees with us, and he starts quoting from Augustine in this book called The Letter and the Spirit, uh, of the, uh, the Letter and the Spirit. So I said, okay, well, I'm going to, the Augustine text that, that Melanchthon is talking about. And I started reading it, and I realized that Augustine was saying exactly the opposite of what Melanchthon was saying. Melanchthon was cherry-picking a few quotations out of it. In fact, Augustine was clearly expressing the Catholic view here, that it's not just faith, but it's the, it's the, it's the life of charity that God produces in us, right? And, and, as, and as Augustine says, um, when God rewards our works and our love, it's because he's rewarding his own gifts. He's rewarding things that he has worked in us. So it's not something, again, that I'm autonomously, you know, earning on my own. And that was very clear in Augustine. And Melanchthon was um, either incompetent, <laughs> couldn't read Augustine clearly, or he's sort of fudging. And so either either case, that, that to me was, uh, it was sort of the straw that broke the camel's back. Because I've, I've suddenly lost my faith that, uh, that Blankton was a reliable uh, guide here. And uh, it really freed me to look at, look at the issue again. Yeah, and so interesting because I mean th- this was a central part of the Reformation, of course. This whole idea of of what salvation means and and how we're saved and how works are involved in that. I mean, lots of ink has been spilled over this over, since since Luther uh, began this the, uh, this discussion and this dialogue opened that up. And and you mentioned too how this the the joint kind of um, confession between or joint agreement between the Catholics and the Lutherans. You, you find it kind of a bit, little bit misleading, not super helpful because the, the terms were confused. But nonetheless, when you dug into that, right, you do find once you define those terms, what you do find is not necessarily agreement between the Lutherans and the Catholics all the way. But you find that it seems like the Catholic view does win out when you really dig deep in there and that it seems like maybe the early church fathers that were used to support Luther's view, maybe were not used entirely correctly or, uh, I don't know, honestly, but probably correctly is the right way of saying that. Is that a fair yeah, assessment? That's, that's, that right. Sense? that's right. Yeah, so, um, and I think, and, and there are a number of Lutherans that will admit um, at one point, uh, Chemnitz, who was one of the main defenders of Lutheranism against the Council of Trent, and also some more contemporary people like um, Robert Preuss, I look at, who, who will admit that, okay, yes, 
there really weren't any church fathers who gave this Lutheran understanding of justification until Luther. He, he recovered it. And that's a very awkward thing for Lutherans to admit, I think, because, uh, you know, if you read the large catechism, Luther is very clear on the idea that the church did not disappear when the apostles died. Right? The church, because, you know, Jesus said, the gates of hell will never prevail. I will always be with you. The church you know, has to continue. And Luther actually uses that to justify infant baptism. He says, if infant baptism were invalid, then the church would have disappeared for all those centuries, and obviously that's false. So, so, uh, so Lutherans can't, can't really accept that. Uh, moreover, and this will get us into the sola scriptura thing. I mean, if you, if you think that the church completely misunderstood the gospel for, you know, 1,400 years from the time of the apostles until Luther— how can you then trust the church to be the one that picks the 27 books of the New Testament and recognizes that these are the these are the indeed the inspired books of 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 of, of um, from God? I mean, if they're incompetent in understanding the gospel, how could they be confident in recognizing which which books are are the correct ones? So yeah, so I, for various reasons, it, 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 I think it's an unsustainable sort of position, and so um, it puts at the very least it puts a very heavy burden of proof on the on the Lutheran at that point. Um, and I, I think a burden that they can't sustain, especially when you look more closely at, at the at the scripture. You know, Lutherans have to depend very heavily on Paul and really very heavily on just a few chapters in Paul, uh, Romans uh, 2 through 4 and Galatians 2 and so on. So they put an awful lot of weight on those. Um, that in itself is, is, I think, a suspect method. You should really you, you know, use the whole of scripture to interpret scripture. Uh, one wants to have a balanced kind of view. But, you know, it, even that aside, when you start looking at these passages more closely, you realize that there's there's several things going on there. I mean, one of the major themes, of course, for Paul is the unity between Jews and Gentiles. That's uh, that's why he thinks that the law had to be set aside. And that dimension of it, the Lutherans completely ignore. And they imagine that when he says that we're not justified by the, by the law, he means just by any kind of morally... Um, uh, any kind of moral assessment of our works of any kind. And, 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 and it's clear that in many cases, that's not what Paul is primarily focused on. So, so yeah, that, I think that uh, that was another point that uh, helped persuade me that the Lutheran position just couldn't be sustained, couldn't, couldn't support the kind of burden of proof that they would really have at that point. Yeah, I mean, because if you are admitting that this is a novel view in a sense that no, I can't find tons of proof from the early church that anyone ever really believed this, but it's the right thing to believe. That is an enormous burden of proof, right? If we had somebody that appeared in the scene today and said, look, Jesus had four, had, you know, God is four, four persons, right? <laughs> That's going to require a lot of proof, lot, exactly. enormous burden of proof yeah. for anyone to believe that, right? So it's pretty, yeah. it's pretty remarkable, you know, that the level of proof that's required for those kinds of things when you can't yeah. find it really elsewhere. So, I mean, Sola yeah. Scriptura is the other enormous pillar yeah. of the, of the, uh, the Reformation, one of probably, I mean, probably if not the, apart from maybe Mary, which really just divides Catholics and Protestants, right? Uh, like yeah. nothing else. Uh, Sola Scriptura is one of those big dividing features of, of Christianity even today. I mean, I don't, I think real scholars and those who are really keen to theology are, are divided over, over Sola Fide still. I think yeah. the the hottest topic that's still so relevant, though, for for any Bible-believing Christian on the street would be sola scriptura. I mean, you say tradition, you say you must, you know, the church does this, church does that. 
your back is up in many cases as an evangelical. A lot of, you know, Lutherans would push back against this. You do a fantastic job succinctly, very logically laying out your case for this. You've given us a little a little hint so far. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. There's just tons to unpack here. How did you begin to approach this, though, as a Lutheran to argue the, the Lutheran position of sola scriptura? Where, where, where do you begin to, to logically yeah. work that through? Right. I think your observation actually is quite accurate, that um, if you talk to Lutheran theologians, people who are really deep into this, they won't defend sola scriptura in the same kind of black and white extreme version that the man and woman in the pew will typically understand by it. They'll understand that, well, this really doesn't make sense, right? And so uh, so what they really mean is that scripture has a kind of unique place within Christian theology, but that there are other sources, obviously, that have to be taken into account and accommodated. Uh, I mean, so, so, so in fact, I had given up sola scriptura long before I join the Catholic Church. And you can actually be a perfectly good Lutheran without really accepting Sola Scriptura. It's not, it's not I think, uh, at least especially, again, as, as ordinarily understood, uh, really essential to it. And we can talk about Mary, too. I'd also kind of come to the point where I was okay with Mary as well. So uh, so those weren't major obstacles <laughs> for me at that point. But getting back to Sola Scriptura, I mean, there, there are, here my philosophical background, I think maybe helps. Uh, because the, the extreme version of Sola Scriptura is just self-defeating, self, self-contradictory, right? Because if you think that, um, you know, if Sola Scriptura means the church can teach only those things that are explicitly taught in Scripture and that follow from it logically, then it would follow that the church could not teach Sola Scriptura (laughs) because Sola Scriptura is not taught explicitly in the Scriptures, right? And so right there, that that is a fundamental contradiction, right? Um, There's just nowhere in the Scriptures where it says that the church must only teach what's explicitly in the Scriptures, right? I mean, there are many things, the the things that Protestants typically point to say that the Scriptures are inspired, that the inspired Word of God, amen, we agree to that, absolutely, that uh, the scriptures are helpful and useful and they're full of, uh, you know, uh, they're, they're sufficient to help us to live godly lives. Absolutely agree with that. There's nothing that says that the scriptures are sufficient in the sense that they provide all the doctrine you need in order to operate the church effectively for hundreds of years. Never says anything like that. And, um, and in fact, of course, the church function perfectly well uh, without a New Testament canon for the first couple hundred years, right? Uh, and so, uh, so obviously they didn't need uh, to have a, a, a recognized, uh, inspired scripture in order, to, in order to do that. So that's a problem. And then there's also the problem of the canon, which also leads to kind of logical problems. I mean, there's no, log- there's no divinely inspired table of content to the Bible, right? <laughs> and, so, and so the, the assembling of these books is an extra scriptural exercise, right? Scripture does not tell us which books to assemble. Uh, the church did that, you know, guided by the Holy Spirit. And you have to think of that as authoritative, right? Or sola scriptura makes no sense. If I said, what's really important is you believe sola scriptura, but I don't care which books you include yeah. in the scriptures, that's a completely incoherent position. Because then I could say, well, I can include the Book of Mormon and the Koran and, you know, the telephone directory or whatever, uh, Julia Child's uh, love of, uh, of French cooking. Um, that's you know, well, obviously, no Protestants can say, well, that's fine. You know, as long as you're still a scriptura, I don't care uh, which books you have in there. Uh, obviously, it matters hugely, but the scriptures don't tell you and don't even provide you with any kind of clear guidelines as to which books to include. Um, there's nothing that actually says it has to be written by an apostle. And nothing that really says what an apostle is <laughs> in the relevant sense. So, uh, so it has to be you have to rely on 
extra biblical sources of information. That's just in your theology. That's just everybody's problem, right? Uh, not just Catholics uh, or, or, or um, Orthodox or others. I mean, everybody has that problem. Um, and then I think the, the perhaps a more interesting question then is, you know, where does this, where does this other source of information come from? Does it come just from um, uh, particular church fathers? But then how do you know which church fathers, right, to include? Do you include Tertullian? Do you base it all on Origen? Do you do Augustine, right? I mean, you have to have some kind of criterion, right? And, um, and ultimately, I think the only criterion that makes any sense is the one that is historical, right? That says, well, let's look at the church that Jesus and the apostles actually created, right? Because they created something that has a history that was passed down from one generation to the next. Where do we find that? Well, we find that in a thing called the Catholic Church right? and nowhere else, right? Uh, I mean, some of my Baptist friends will say, oh, there were these underground Baptist congregations all along. There's no evidence for that. That's pure, pure speculation on their part. And in fact, pretty hard to believe, to be honest. Uh, so, uh, so there's really only the, the church. Um, and as I mentioned in the very beginning of the book, um, there's a kind of uh, syllogism that the, the whole book is sort of based on, which is that um, God clearly intended for the church to be united and to be united in a, in a way that it wasn't, that didn't involve um, indifference to truth, right? Uh, not necessarily, well, we'll just get along with whatever we believe. No, he, uh, he clearly intended the church to be orthodox and to be united. But um, if God's going to will that, then he has to will means to that end that are appropriate to human nature. How do you get human beings to be both united and to share a body of doctrine? Well, human beings are social animals, and we're historical animals, right? We live in a kind of set of social institutions that get passed down from one generation to the next. So the only way in which the church can be united would be for it to have some kind of authority structure. Right? that defines the boundaries of the church so that you know where to find the church when you're looking for one. And, um, and in fact, it's pretty clear that that's what Jesus and the apostles did. <laughs> they, they appointed elders and then bishops in the various cities in which the churches were founded. And those elders and those bishops passed on their authority to the next generation. And so there's a, there's a, there's a historical continuity there. Um, so when Jesus tells the apostles um, that the Holy Spirit will come and he will guide you to all the church, very important, I think, that the Greek word there is plural. You all, we would say in Southern English, Southern American English, right? Uh, and many Protestants read that and think, oh, he means that the Holy Spirit will teach me all truth when I look at the Bible and, and ask for the Holy Spirit's guidance. Well, that's not what the scripture says, actually. It says that he will guide the church you know, to all truth. And so, you know, it's not, it's not just me and Jesus in the Bible, right? It's really a, a church that's been created in which we find ourselves. So the church has to have, um, ha we have to look to the church as our authority in terms of how to understand the scriptures. And when you look at that, you find that it's, the church has been very consistent in how to understand the scriptures. It's not like you find, you know, lots and lots of contradictory theories about how to understand the basic parts of the scriptures, you know, read it backwards or something, right? I mean, it, it, there's a very wide, very broad consensus about how to understand this. And uh, each generation builds upon the work of the earlier generations in, in a very clear way. 
Um, so I, I, another thing I mentioned in the book, of course, is Henry, John Henry Newman's uh, uh, essay on the development of doctrine, which has been very influential to me as well. Um, you know, I, I certainly always have believed in the Trinity, always have believed in the two natures of Christ and, uh, and, uh, and in baptism. And Newman points out that, you know, none of those things are really explicitly taught in the scriptures, right? You can't deduce them from scriptural statements in a kind of logical way. Um, they, they have developed. My Wi-Fi is not uh, totally stable. Um, so anyway, I think that's why it's important for us to look to the um, church as a, a source. Of right. But as I was saying, since uh, God has clearly made us as social animals, right, historical animals, uh, it would make sense that he would create a church, which is itself an ins- a social institution right? uh, that, has, that has a historical continuity to it. Um, and the Lutheran picture, I think, is, and maybe more generally Protestant picture is, God sort of parachuted this Bible down to us and then said, okay, guys, you know, figure it out on your own. You know, you organize yourself into congregations or whatever. You know, I don't really care. Um, but, but the problem is, you know, the, the Bible is not a, it's not a, a self-interpreting doc, document, right? We really need to have some sort of authoritative guidance in terms of how to understand it. And that's going to take the shape of, uh, again, historically continuous church of some kind. Yeah, there's just that logical problem of sola scriptura, right? You have to wrestle with it. That's your, if that's your kind of final arbiter. Yeah. I mean, because, and I've got, I've got great evangelical friends, and this is what I believed also as an evangelical, that oh, the Bible interprets itself. But I mean, then what, then, then that same friend will say, well, no, John 6, Christ isn't speaking literally. He means this because this verse interprets that, right? right? I mean, you right. can say the Bible interprets itself, but then you're still going to choose what key unlocks which lock from within the Bible right. by picking and choosing the context right. and which verses to, I mean, and as you say, things aren't, aren't explicitly clear. Right, things do develop as yeah. John Henry Newman talks about, and in that famous essay of his, right. And if we yeah. can't, if we are going to be locked into saying scripture, scripture is the kind of the final arbiter, the only arbiter, or the, or even kind of the fine, or even kind of really the only thing they can they can comment on things, you really got to explain how some of these things are. We believe them because th- there has to be some kind of authoritative yeah. development. Never mind the canon itself. I mean, there's just. So much to unpack here. I think yeah. of how how I understood. You I mean, it's, that- it's clear there are parts. I mean, it's clear there are parts of the Bible that aren't easy to understand. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, no one thinks that Ezekiel or Revelation or you know are, are self-interpreting, right? Um, and um, and you know, Peter even talks about Paul and Paul's letters says they're very difficult, right? Uh, so so of course, what what some Protestants will then say is, okay, but let's just focus on the essential doctrines of the of the Bible, and we, we'll disagree about the the minor details, but we'll just agree on the essential ones. But then the problem is. The Bible doesn't say which ones are the essential ones either, right? Paul doesn't say, okay, pay attention now. This is one of the essential doctrines, right? Uh, they, they never make that distinction. And you find, again, a whole variety of views about what, what counts as essential. So, again, my own Lutheran Missouri Synod tradition was pretty much everything in the Bible is essential. Right? You don't get to make those distinctions. And I've got other friends who are in more Armenian tradition. And, well, Jesus is Lord. That's probably good enough, right? So, you know, wide spectrum here. And so, again, there's no, there's no basis there for consensus. And there are many things that are very practical, right, about, well, do we baptize infants? Uh, what do we do about someone who's a heretic? Or what about someone who's tolerating heretics or their schismatics? Do we, do we admit them to communion or not? And under what conditions? I mean, there's, no, there's no rule book, right, in the New Testament that tells us how to do that. But those are really essential questions. You can't, you can't operate a church without making some decisions about those things. 
Uh, and uh, apart from, again, tradition uh, and, and history, uh, I, I don't see how you could make those, make those decisions. Yeah, and again, you talk about the Bible being kind of parachuted down to us in this Protestant kind of view of things. And that's certainly, I mean, I became, I was saved at the age of 15. I went into a Christian bookstore, got a Bible off the shelf. I had no idea. I, I, I was not in the context of the Bible, right? It wasn't like, okay, this book's put yeah. together. This is bound together. These books we think belong in here, but here you go. I was just given a Bible, as I think so yeah. many evangelical listeners and viewers of the show would have had been in the same position. You, you don't in your tradition necessarily question where that Bible came from. You take it. This is the Word of God. We, we know it is because we know it is. But once you begin to, as you did, kind of logically work through the best case for why this Bible is really the sole arbiter of your faith, you do have to ask those hard questions. And those are even just practical questions you have to ask. How does this actually actually work? I, I think of like the Deuterocanon. You know, we have more books in our Catholic yes. Bible than than the Protestants do these days. And Luther didn't didn't right. like some of those books and kind of moved them kind of to the back and they were slowly yeah. kind of lopped off because they were... Yeah. I mean, there's, there's things in there that seem to speak to prayers for the dead and intercession right. of the saints and these things that mm-hmm. that I think scholarship of of the Bible, like Bible scholars who are digging into the origin of the canon and the, and the ancient books and these ancient Greek and Hebrew languages are realizing with more modern discoveries, those probably actually belong in the canon and we're in the oldest canons, despite what yeah. we would have thought perhaps, uh, you know, uh, they were, used, they were in the Greek Bible that, yeah. that the apostles used. Just, yeah. uh, the Paul used right. Sure. And, 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 and um, the evidence is overwhelming to show that now, I think, and scholarship has pretty much settled that question. Oh, yeah. But those aren't in the Protestant Bible. And if the Bible is your sole arbiter, well, you're missing like these key things that kind of have quite a few Catholic-type leaning, you know, ideas in there. So yeah. I mean, that's that alone is enough to, I think, give the, the Protestant listener a bit of pause and, and deeply consider that, I think, right? Yeah. Yeah, you know, Luther wanted to take the book of James out of the Bible uh, because it seemed to contradict his own doctrine. And I mean, in a way, his position was sort of consistent, I guess, right? I mean, if, if you're pretty sure what the gospel is and James disagrees, then then Luther could be the one deciding the canon. Now, the church didn't follow, Lutheran church didn't follow him because they realized that was going to be a path to chaos, <laughs> to anarchy, right? If we start allowing ourselves to remove books that we that are sort of awkward, uh, so yeah, it, uh, it, yeah. I mean, I think every Protestant needs to ask himself, why are these twenty-seven books in the New Testament? Where did they come from? Um, there's a history behind them, and uh, and it's the church that uh, that gave those twenty-seven books to us. So, so you can't really say, but that church has no authority whatsoever, right? <laughs> uh, while while saying that, nonetheless, uh, we'll accept these twenty-seven books and only those. Yeah, because you begin to realize, and I've realized this, and I've written and made a couple of videos on this idea that the same church that gave us the Bible at that time had things like relics, and we're praying. For, yeah. for the intercession of saints, and we're celebrating right. the Eucharist in a mass that looks really similar to how mass looks these days. So Very it's a similar. little right. It's a little <laughs> bit tricky to say that church had the authority to set this canon, but yeah. all these other things that they were doing. Well, we don't really accept those things, but we'll take this because they, you know, they mm-hmm. kind of fell into. And you know, Luther himself talks about this, right? The idea that the church didn't go away; it it was there, but kind of got some things wrong. But it was 
kind of still there. The tricky position, I think, I think you in your book uh, quote that famous Carl uh, E. Truman quote that uh, that I, so many of us converts have encountered. I remember I had Francis Beckwith on this show, and I was reading his conversion story and found that quote in there as well. And that was a quote that I'd found apart from that book. The idea that really you need really good reasons to be not a Catholic because the Catholic Church seems to have you know, by default, yeah. the historical position on all these different things, once you begin to dig into history, right, you find this, right? The same church that put the Bible together, had the Eucharist and celebrated all these different kinds of things. That practice, that should be our default, unless we have really good reasons not to default to that, right? Yeah, that's, that's exactly the case that I'm trying to build in the book. That's right. Uh, to explain why the Lutheran or other Protestants have the burden of proof. And then just to make the case that they can't meet that burden, that it, uh, it's just uh, too too high a bar for them to meet. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things I encountered this quite a bit with when, when in dialogue with evangelicals who are digging into the the faith. So who've been doing exercise, kind of like what you were doing when you're actually looking at comparing these two things and looking for the Lutheran case for for Lutheranism versus Catholicism, is you find you find church fathers who seem to line up with what you're saying and seem to sound a little bit Lutheran or a little bit evangelical. I mean, yeah. you can find church fathers who talk about the Eucharist as symbolic and talk about and and question how we're saved and, and talk about works as these things that don't sound like the Catholic view. But what you have to look at, and I think you you found this in, in your study, is you have to look at the church as a whole, at, at the history as a whole. I mean, because you can pick and choose church fathers that sound evangelical at certain phases, but those church yeah. fathers were also in many cases bishops who submitted to the authority of the church on those matters. Ultimately, no matter what they said, I mean, look at Jerome, who talked, who said, thing, who was very bombastic and said all kinds of things that didn't sound very Catholic. Ultimately, yeah. surrendered his will to the church and said, "Yeah, but the church is the church, right?" So, I think often misunderstood by evangelicals by Protestants looking into the ancient churches. Hey, I found this church father who sounds like this. Well, yeah, we as Catholics uphold the church fathers, but they aren't, they aren't the gospel truth. They aren't the be all and end all on this and this word. Cause those church fathers yeah. still submitted to the will of the church. Does that make any sense? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was definitely one of the things I looked at. There was a uh, book by, um, uh, let's see if I remember his name and down, Odin, Thomas Odin, where he collected together uh, a lot of uh, quotations from the Church Fathers on justification and faith. And uh, you just read that book, and you might get the impression, yeah, the Church Fathers were basically sola fide, right? But in, in this case, you don't even have to look at the whole church. You can just look at those fathers themselves in more, in more detail and read the, their whole works, even the whole work in from which the quotation is taken, and immediately see that no, none of them were Lutheran, actually. None of them believed sola fide or anything close to it. Uh, so you, you can drop in and jump in and take individual quotes out. Um, but even then, I mean, when you look at the quotes carefully, all they say is that faith is necessary for salvation. None of them say, and that's it, that it's completely sufficient for salvation. You can't even find a quote that says that until, until the Reformation. So, so is, you know, you, yeah, you have to be careful about that. Um, and uh, let's see, what's the other thing I was going to say? Um, um, yeah, so even, even individual authors, you have to look at the totality of their, of their work. Right. And uh, and it's easy to cherry pick, as we say, to jump in and take particular pieces out and make it sound like something. Oh, I was going to mention yeah, that uh, uh, Chemnitz, again, one of the great Lutheran defenders, when he talked about this, he said, well, uh, you know, the, the church fathers will often say really great things like in their hymns and prayers, which we like. 
But then when they write these theological treatises, then they say very, make very unfortunate statements. <laughs> and so basically saying, you know, when it's sort of poetical and loose, it sounds a little Lutheran. But when they're very careful and precise, it doesn't sound Lutheran. Well, that's bad, right? <laughs> you don't you don't want to have to rely on the loose and poetic stuff and ignore the precise, you know, theological work that these same fathers are doing. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, these kinds of things, these positions ultimately make you the arbiter, right? Ultimately, I mean, mm-hmm. we're in a sense, as a Lutheran, you're really trusting Luther that, to get, that got these things right, right? Versus the history and the church. And then even separated 500 plus years from then, I, I think of this idea of as Protestants, we, you know, oftentimes we're raised in a church. So you were, you were deep in the Lutheran tradition, for example, uh, it, but, but these days, I think that's less and less common, right? Because you have people who kind of just jump around in all these non-denominational churches. That was my background for a while. Pentecostal, right. Baptist, non-denominational, and then kind of it's, it's, it's free range at that point. But <laughs> you look yeah. for a church that sounds biblical is what you do, right? right. But you're, you're, what you're really doing is looking for a church that sounds like your interpretation of the, of the Bible and right. and that becomes dangerous territory because then you're looking for a church that kind of sounds like how you understand things, and if they don't sound like you're how you understand things, you you avoid that church. But that's really, I mean, that's putting you in the driver's seat, right? That's ultimately, I think, yeah. what began the Reformation. Or in another a sense. way to put it, it puts it puts an impossible burden yeah. on the individual believer. Yeah. Because that's the way I felt about it. Because yeah, Lutheranism says, okay, here's the mark of the true church. It's the church that teaches everything correctly from the Bible. Okay. So, and it's up to you, individual believer, to find the true church. That's your job. Okay. So that means I've got to master every aspect of theology and the Bible in order to be able to identify which church is the correct one. I can't do that. Who could do that? Right. Um, that's, 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 a, that's a monstrously huge task. Um, the Catholic church says, here's your job. Find the church that Christ the apostles created. Trying the church is historically connected to them. That's doable, right? You can, uh, almost anybody can do a little work and digging and figure out that church over there calls itself the Catholic church. That's the one that's most historically connected to the apostles. So it, it gives, it gives, I mean, you still have, you know, it still is in some sense one's individual responsibility to find the right church, right? I and mean, you can't escape that. But the question is, do I have to master it all? all the doctrines of the Bible in order to figure out which church is the correct one. Um, if that's the task that Jesus gave us, he's asking, you know, the, the impossible of us. And that, that doesn't seem plausible. Yeah. And it still relies back on the Bible that the church put together, right? So it's that vicious yeah, circle. That's, that's, yeah, yeah. that's right. First figure out which books should be in the Bible. <laughs> then after you've done that, uh, they do exactly the right doctrines from those Bibles and then find the church that teaches that. Yeah. Uh, that's a pretty tough recipe to, to carry out. Well, it's so interesting the way you the word that way because it is it's these two different kinds of challenges. One is finding the historical church, and one's finding the church that fits the Bible. I mean, which one of those challenges makes more sense? Well, one is contradictory and seems Im- impossible to actually do, and one you can historically trace. This is the church, right? I mean, yeah. I think of a debate that I saw I, early on. I used to binge Catholic debates and, and YouTube videos back in the very early days of YouTube. We, before we had kids, I was looking into the Catholic church and would stay up till 3 a.m. just watching Catholic videos on YouTube because it was this brand new thing, and I was just so, like, I was, I was, I was getting deep into the matrix at this point. Mm-hmm. I was just so interested in Catholicism. And this debate between Father Mitch Pacwa, who didn't even know who he was at the time. He's, you know, he's quite mm-hmm. the guy. And mm-hmm. um, a, a Protestant apologist on Sola Scriptura. And the Protestant 
But Paul just came out saying in his final final you know closing remark said, "Look, this is all I need to know to be a Christian." And holds his Bible up, right? And then brings out these suitcases of books and says, to be a Catholic, you have to know all this stuff. And it was all these council, <laughs> the council documents and the catechism. And it was this big yeah. dramatic stack of books. And I was, yeah. and, and I was, you know, as a, as a Protestant looking at the Catholic church thought, yeah, you know what? He's got a point there. The Catholic church has all these things you have to, it seems like a big burden to be a Catholic. But then Father Mitch walks out and says, yeah, but to be a Protestant, the Catholic Church has said all these things. Yeah, th- this is this is accurate. The Catholic Church has written a lot on things because things have developed in the last two thousand years, and there's new things to talk about. Like the Church hasn't been stagnant and written nothing. But to be to be a Protestant, you have to not only know that Bible, but all the possible interpretations of every every angle and theology and nuance to know that you are the correct kind of Protestant. And that's right. way more books than just this stack here of the Catechism and these documents from Vatican II and Trent. Right. And I thought, yeah, right? That's, right? that's the challenge, because if you yeah. are going to really... Right, exactly. I mean, you've got over here, you've got this encyclopedia that will help you figure out the right interpretation. Yeah. <laughs> so if I was if I were worrying about, well, how do I understand Paul on the law in Romans. Well, I can find church fathers. I can find other documents. They'll say, well, here's some, here's, here's what he means. Here's, here's what's going on. So yeah, it's actually hugely helpful, yeah. not, not an additional burden. In any case, I don't need to master all that to be a Catholic, right? I don't need, yeah. need to figure out that the Catholic church is the true church. I don't have to check every council, right? And, and, and compare it with, uh, with the other, just, uh, Real trust that, uh, that that the Holy Spirit's been guiding this church. Yeah, and that that leads very well into my last question I want to talk to you about, and that's the papacy. And you know, I have a good evangelical friend, yeah. YouTuber Austin Suggs. Gospel Simplicity is his YouTube channel, and he has so has so pointedly pointed out that really authority is the ultimate, is the be all and end all. If you if you can come to recognize and realize and accept that the Catholic Church is historically the church that Christ founded, yeah, all these other things flow from that, right? You don't have to discover, you don't have to unpack all these things for yourself necessarily, as long as you accept that the Catholic Church is what it says it is. And this really kind of rises and falls on this authority claim. And you make it a fantastic case. I mean, I had uh, Catholic anthropologist Joe Heschmeyer on this show a few times, and he makes the same case, I think probably cribbed from you, if he's honest. The, The idea that the papacy has this important and great unifying ability and that really, if you don't accept the, the papacy, you're stuck between this, this, this rock and this hard place, the idea of unity versus truth, right? And this is a really, yeah. I think, a really poignant kind of claim and I think really needs to be seriously considered and understood by, by Protestant Christians because it's really, I mean, you're a philosopher. It's a really airtight, logical argument. Can you just unpack the idea of us, that, that kind of idea of truth versus unity and, and, and what, what Christ yeah. could have intended for his, for his church? Yeah, right. So, so and it, it's partly history too, right? So if we, look at, if we look at Christian history, we find that Christians often disagree about how to understand the Bible, how to interpret it, how to apply it. And, um, and so, and these, and these disagreements have a tendency to ramify, right? So if we disagree about one thing and then we take up another issue, you know, we're not going to get four different views instead of two and then eight and 16 and, and they're going to spread out further and further. So as this happens, you know, 
if, if on the one hand we read John 16, we're supposed to be one, we're supposed to be visibly one in such a way that will impress the world with our unity, then we might say, okay, then we better just keep watering down our doctrinal standards to embrace this wider and wider and wider group until with the World Council of Churches, we'll just say, okay, Jesus is Lord, that's enough, uh, we won't require anything else. But that, that clearly, you know, it isn't going to work, right? You're going to put the theology that's so minimal, it doesn't mean anything at all. The Mormons can say Jesus is Lord, and then, uh, you know, then, and, and are we going to embrace that as well? So, so that doesn't work. So then the typical Protestant strategy, and this is the way that the Lutherans Missouri Synod works, is as these fragmentations happen, you say, we're the true visible church, everybody else is wrong, right? And so, and then everybody else will say the same thing, and so you get you get more and more and more fragmentation, so that you get plenty of doctrine, plenty of content, and uh, uh, but, uh, but no unity, no visible unity whatsoever, right? Which, again, contradicts what Jesus is predicting and what he's, 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 he's offering to the church. So the only way that you can have both is to have some sort of umpire that can actually say, safe, out, <laughs> that, can, uh, that can deal with these disagreements and either say, okay, um, in fact, the church is going to affirm this one and, and reject the others, or you can say, this is going to something the church will leave open for continued discussion. You can be a perfectly good Catholic and have both views. That's that's fine, and uh, and and so you know you make those make those kind of cases, right? So realize, okay, you know we can't sort of give up on the real presence of Jesus in the sacrament, right? Uh, that's that's non negotiable. You have to believe that, right? Uh, but uh, Molinism versus uh, other con- more more Dominican conceptions of free will. That's all right. That's kind of a philosophical debate that we can allow to continue, and we'll, we'll embrace that, uh, that diversity. So, in fact, um, you know, I think the Catholic Church is, is remarkably diverse in its, its views. I mean, the number of issues that are absolutely settled are actually fairly small, um, but they're very important, right? and they go way beyond Jesus as Lord. Right? They do. They do give enough of enough content that you have, you know, a substantial foundation to build on. But at the same time, um, you know, a lot of diversity, a lot of freedom of thought within the Catholic Church as well, uh, which I think is also a very great positive thing. And you know, I, I, you know, why why the Pope? Well, without a single international global authority, then you're going to get national churches that are going off in different directions eventually. Orthodox are sort of seeing this, right? Because yeah. they, they lack a clear cut international authority. And so the different autonomous churches are, you know, beginning to uh, and turn over practical issues mostly, but eventually there'll be some more theological issues as well, I, I would guess. And certainly among Protestants, you see that, of course, constantly. So, um, so yeah, I think um, the, uh, some kind of authority is, um, is needed to have, have real unity. And, um, and you know, and, and I, I think that, you know, from my, from my point of view, you, you reach the papacy primarily through history, right? I mean, that is, I expect that there would be some institution there that will maintain the unity of the church over time. And when you look at history, it's clearly it's the papacy. And then, of course, if you go back to the New Testament, you read Matthew 16 and John uh, 22 and so on. Okay, then it makes sense because, you know, he, Jesus is clearly picking out Peter and saying, you know, you're going to be the, you're going to be the rock. You're going to be the one who feeds the lambs. And Peter is connected with Rome and, and the bishops of Rome are connected to Peter. So, you know, it, it all, it all sort of fits together. Uh, I wouldn't try to deduce it from, from Matthew 16 alone as though that was a, 
Um, you know, and this is where, again, Protestants don't understand this. They say, but I, you know, I, I, there are lots of interpretations of Matthew 16 that don't necessarily get you to the papacy. Sure. Right. But look at the actual history. Right. You have the papacy. That's a fact. Right. And then the question is, what's the status of it? And now you'll go back to Matthew 16 and say, OK, that makes sense. Right. Uh, uh, that Jesus is indeed giving some special authority to Peter, which is being transmitted to the to, to, through the bishops of Rome. Yeah. And I think just. I mean, for for me, I I think before even honestly, before even scripture, before even looking at the church fathers, I the logical case for the papacy, for magisterium, yeah. for an authority, authoritative body that could put the Bible together and then could teach authoritatively and rule on these things, became for me just the logical case of that became. Uh, you know, the the live issue that then I said, yeah, there, there must be this. Because you see this, right? You see, I can think of Baptists I've had in the show who have become Catholic after church split and church split and church split. And they said, hey, you know what? Like, there's got to be a better way of doing this. Like, what's what's our arbiter, yeah. right? And as yeah. you as you point out, as you have pointed out, there has to be something that can can certify unity, can, can hold the church together as a visible church, like Christ prays for in John 17, but doesn't, force us to compromise on truth, right? To water things down, down, yeah. down, down. It's a contradiction yeah. that as an evangelical, I said, I saw the body of Christ as this invisible group of believers who just believed in Jesus, yet we weren't united on, in, in doctrine. Some of us believed in infant <laughs> baptism. Some of us believed baptism saved. Some of us didn't believe that. Some of us believed you could lose your salvation. Some of us didn't believe that. I mean, it wasn't just small things, right? It was it was these enormous yeah. things. I mean, how we're saved is a, is a pretty big thing in the scheme of things. And we couldn't agree, yet we'd say yeah. we're still part of this invisible body of Christ that's united under Christ invisibly. But there was there the the truths, right, in that were so, so watered down that it wasn't sustainable. We it, it wasn't it wasn't and yeah. and we weren't that visible unity. To show the world, right? I mean, that's what, that's what Jesus prayed for, that they would see exactly. us and see and see the Father and see the church and see that unity. That's not that's not unity, right? When we believe all these right. different things. Yet yeah, he's I mean, really talking about something visible there. Yeah, there's no yeah. question around about that. Yeah. There can't be a, a, yet here here comes down the street this ancient thing that says, Look, here I'm the thing that has always united the church mm-hmm. around this thing, right? I mean, the logical case for that, for me, was was really, really came before even the historical, and I realized there's got to be something in that, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you here on oh, this program. I really can't say enough about this book. I think, I mean, it's, it's so concise. It's very... You, you can tell that a philosopher has put his mind to this, and, and if somebody wants to you know, read this case really succinctly and logically and and concisely. This is it. I mean, I'll put a link to the show notes um, to your book and your other work as well. Is there anywhere else you want to point listeners or viewers to to find out more about what you're up to, what you're doing? Where do you want to send them? Um, well, I've got a website, robcoons.net, um, and uh, I've got um, links to lots of my papers and other podcasts I've done and articles I've written. So that's, that's probably the best place if you're interested in things to do with me. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds fantastic. Hey, thank you. This has been a lot of fun for me. Um, I, I want to say God bless you. God bless the work you're doing for the church. Thank you so much. And, uh, and take care. Great. Oh, thank my my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. 
Hopefully you enjoyed that fantastic conversation with Dr. Robert Coons. I loved having that. By the way, it's a Lutheran's case, Roman Catholicism. Not a Lutheran's guide, it's a case, <laughs> not a guide. Thecourtofcatholic.com is my website for show notes for blog articles as well. At Courts of Catholic on Twitter, Courts of Catholic on Instagram. The Court of Catholic on Facebook and on YouTube as well. You can watch this episode, youtube.com slash The Cordial Catholic. Please give a f- subscribe there too if you're on YouTube to get help this channel to keep on growing as well. We're almost, almost at 1,000 subscribers. <laughs> That'll be a small milestone. CordialCatholic at gmail.com is my email address. Please do reach out to email me. I love hearing from you guys. I'll write back as soon as I can to all those emails and I love receiving them. Patreon.com slash CordialCatholic or PayPal.me slash CordialCatholic to support this show financially. That support goes right back into the show to help this thing grow and go. And thank you so much to those who are already supporting this show. Thanks so much, guys. Please do leave a rating and review if you can on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Please follow or subscribe to this podcast too because that really does help this show to grow and helps new people to find this stuff too. And that's the whole point of this thing, right? To spread the message of the Catholic faith far and wide. Thanks for listening, guys. Please pray for me. Know that I am praying for you too. I'll see you again next week. And guys, God bless. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordial A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.